Intersection is brought to you by Social Health Institute, exploring new and innovative ways for hospitals and healthcare organizations to develop and enhance their social media and digital marketing strategies. Learn more at socialhealthinstitute.com. Find something you want to do and go do it. It doesn't matter who's done it before you. Welcome to Intersection. I'm Bobby Rutu, storyteller. In 2017, Dr. Anand Gramapati, Dean of the College of Engineering, Computing, and Applied Sciences, asked Gray Digital Group's storytelling team to craft a series of stories inspiring the next generation of engineers to attend Clemson University. We identified numerous narratives showcasing visual stories that would inspire individuals to take the next steps to change the world. During the creative process, we knew telling a story of a bioengineering researcher helping a young boy with a lower limb prosthetic find comfort while walking and running would be a compelling story. What we found was something far more interesting and compelling. I met researcher and PhD candidate Meredith Owen, who we cast for this story. Her work is amazing, but what is more amazing is her passion to help people, lower limb amputees, real people in dire need of comfort. In a 2016 study by an MIT sociologist, 20% of undergraduate engineering degrees are awarded to women, but only 13% of the engineering workforce is female. Meredith Owen is changing the face of the profession, providing a rich intersection inside the story recrafted for Clemson. We purposely chose a smart female bioengineering researcher so other high school teenage girls could see themselves as future engineers. Oh, so introduce yourself. Who are you? Um, Meredith Owen. I'm a second year, just finishing up my second year in graduate school at Clemson University. I'm in the bioengineering department there. I like the outdoors, long walks on the beach if we're going to get cliche, um, reading, running. Anything else? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know about me. So you and I started working together. The first time that I found you um, was I was doing research for Mm -hmm. a series of videos to promote engineering at Clemson University. Yes. And and I'm trying to remember who, how we found you. I think it was one of my former students in the MBA program said, you need to go talk to Meredith. I don't know. I know that I got an email from my advisor um, saying, hey, we're having this meeting about prosthetics. They're interested in doing, I think, videos. I don't even know if that had been said at that point, but that's the research area that I work in. Um, And so uh, he asked me to sit in on the meeting, and that was, I think, the first meeting we had. And at that point, I thought you guys were looking to do, like, a single-day film in the lab and, like, hey, here's let's set up a mock experiment and run that. So that's what I think I thought it was at that point. Um, that is not what it was. <laughs> <laughs> not in a bad way, but that's, that's not in a better it way. It, it was in a, in a better way. Yeah. So let's talk about bioengineering. Yeah. So what is bioengineering? Uh, to me, people will give you different definitions, but to me, the, the way I like to summarize it is it's a combination of several different disciplines um, that kind of arose as a need arose. Um, so as healthcare has become, I guess, increasingly utilized and the advancements in healthcare have been 
uh, people are living longer, I guess. Um, bioengineering is kind of that perfect mesh of we take mechanical, we take electrical, we take the sciences, biology and chemistry, and you mesh them all together to solve these healthcare issues. So whether that's using mechanical engineering skills and and techniques to solve problems in joints and with joint mechanics, or whether that's taking different aspects of chemistry and biology and material science and biomaterials and and meshing that all together to solve different issues with, you know, the soft tissues or um, even such things as, you know, people who have heart defects or lung defects. And, um, but it, when you break it down, we're using the base engineering knowledge to solve those problems. To me, that's kind of how I like to summarize it. It's a, it's a intersection of a bunch of different fields. So obviously bioengineering is a very large, complex field inside engineering because there's so many aspects. What is your niche? What do you work on? I like mechanics. I like large stuff. I like things that I can touch and feel. Um, I work specifically in biomechanics, um, injuries, and I broke a lot of bones as a kid. I played a lot of sports. Um, And I think if you talk to anybody who does the mechanics side of bioengineering, they'll probably tell you one of those two things, if not both. So that kind of led me into wanting to know more about how the body worked in that sense. So how it moves kind of as a machine and how the joints work. And, um, and then from there, I kind of continued to refine what I was interested in and what eventually led me to lower limb prosthetic technologies and, you know, the biomechanics behind lower limb prosthetics. So let's talk about lower limb. What does that mean? Tell it for the average person that doesn't know or understand what you're talking about. Describe that. So lower limb, uh, your legs, uh, upper limb would be your arms. Um, so I focus mainly, um, on the lower body, your lower limbs. If you're talking about an amputee population, there are two main groups that you typically hear about. Um, there's several others, uh, but the two main groups would be a, a trans tibial, which would be, um, any amputation below the knee, um, in the middle of the leg and then a trans femoral, which would be any amputation above the knee between the knee and the hip. Um, and there are several others, uh, depending on if you're in a joint or outside of the joint. Um, but the main ones we look at are the transtibial and the transfemoral. So tell me a little bit about your, your focus, your research focus. My research focus is on pressure mitigation in lower limb prosthetics. So a lower limb prosthetic is composed of three main parts, which would be a prosthetic socket. So the connection between the residual limb and the device, the full prosthetic device is the socket. And that's really a, a very custom um, design. It's it's really an art form. If you talk to a lot of prosthetists, um, which are the people that fit, uh, fit these devices on an amputee, it's very much an art form for them, um, as well as a science. So it's, it's a really cool mix of the both. Um, a pylon, which connects the socket, and that kind of simulates how long your limb, limb would be, and then a foot, so what to walk on. And so we really look at the socket part of the prosthesis and how to better design it so that we can mitigate some pressure that patients may feel in their residual limb. If you walk on it for eight hours a day, you know, minimum or maximum, um, it's putting a lot of pressure, stress, or even, you know, discomfort on these residual limbs that's not typical. We have feet um, and our feet are specifically designed to walk on and 
you know, you touch your heel, it's hard, it's kind of a callous bottom. Um, but when you move up and if you're looking at an amputee, it's a lot of soft tissue and that soft tissue is not necessarily meant to be loaded in the way that it's loaded for a prosthetic device. So we're looking at taking the internal, the internal surface of the socket and looking at how we can, you know, redesign it or incorporate different technologies to improve the comfort mainly for the patient. This is one area when we started working together Mm -hmm. that obviously I was very ignorant. I I didn't have a lot of knowledge about. So it was very much an exploration for me, you know? Uh, And second is I never thought about that connection point between the body and the prosthetic, you know, the socket where it goes. And I'm going to kind of describe what you're talking about. It's the socket is literally like a socket. You put your your lower part of your leg into something and it mm-hmm. sits like mm-hmm. you like you describe and i never thought that you know when someone is an amputee each amputee is different they they are yeah. it's been, it, it comes in different places <laughs> yeah. and in different forms and the bone that's there has to rest on something yeah and i imagine it is very very uncomfortable for people to manage that when that was never meant to bear the load in the way that that, if you think of it in that, those terms. Uh, most definitely. Um, it's hard to speak on, you know, how a population feels because I don't have, mm. I don't wear a prosthesis. I'm not an amputee. But, you know, in the anecdotal evidence, when we talk to these patients or when we talk to these amputees, um, you know, that's one of the things you see commonly. And, and you see it in, you know, kind of clinical reports, too, of different injuries that are caused by the loading scenarios that, you know, are atypical of standard human walking or, or standard walking. Um, so, yeah, it's a it's one of those things where for us, for me specifically, you know, I can't feel what this population's feeling. So there's always the need to, to reach out and to talk and, and to find members of the population that can actually provide useful information for us so that we can design something better. Um, so it's not just us in a lab trying to figure stuff out. And I think a lot of bioengineering is that way. Um, and you see it with across the whole field is it's not just us sitting in labs doing work. It's people going out and talking to doctors, people going out and talking to patients, people going out and talking to clinicians and getting that anecdotal feedback and that personal feedback and then taking that back into the lab. And using that information to inform design. So for us, it's extremely important because there's no way for me or to feel kind of what a member of that population would be feeling in our designs. You know, um, so my graduate study was audience analysis and um, really diving into understanding audience. Yeah. And a part of audience analysis in the design world is UX, user-centered design. Mm-hmm. How can you create something that fits the user in the space that they can interact with it in a way that doesn't seem like the technology gets in a way? Mm-hmm. And so when I think about UCX, especially with all the work that I do in photography and cameras, Um, form factor is huge for us. So when you think about purchasing cameras in my world, form factor, the way that you hold the camera is very Mm -hmm. personal. Yeah. Um, We pick, I pick cameras based on how they feel in my hand, you know, how comfortable they are. Um, When I buy a new camera, I accept the fact that even though I've selected good form factor, 
that I'm going to probably have a little bit of carpal tunnel for a while because Mm -hmm. my hand is getting used to it. I squeeze and hold and do things for a while. And so, you know, the engineers have spent years thinking about how that works. Uh And that's just for something that we purchase on a consumer level. Yeah. And so would you say that now there's very much this intentionality of user-centered design when it comes to something that you have to live with? Oh, most definitely. Talk about that experience of, and maybe there's a shift in the way that prosthetics have been built over the years. Talk, maybe let's, yeah. let's talk about the background of that a little bit. Um, again, not being a prosthetist and only have been, uh, I guess, involved in this field for a, a few years now, um, I'm still consider myself a newbie. But from what you know, I've seen and what I've heard and what I've read, um, there has been a, a pretty big shift, and this goes across medicine from this, you know, one size fits all or a, a size based design to how can we really get custom to the patient and how can we really get custom to the user in an attempt to improve, you know, things such as outcome measures or user comfort or, um, you know, any even just user experience, whether that's comfort, discomfort, pain the process of receiving a device, anything like that. Um, And while prosthetics is kind of a niche area because it's always had to be custom, um, you can't take a circle and fit it in a square peg kind of deal. If your socket doesn't fit the limb and it doesn't mate well, it's going to, there's not going to be good connection. It's not going to work. So there always has been this element of customization to prosthetics and orthotics and, and to the design of a prosthesis. Um, but I think over the years, and especially now, people are looking to take advantage of some of the technologies that exist to better customize. So 3D printing, 3D scanning, just different methods, computer CAD design, different methods to really get at how can we make the shape match better or what can we do um, to better design a prosthetic socket to improve patient comfort. And and there are even people looking to eliminate the socket altogether. So um Let's just load through the bone, and it's a it's a process called osseo integration, um, and basically it is what it is. You integrate the prosthesis into the bone, um, and you eliminate the socket altogether. So that's still very new. Um, there are clinical studies. There are people out there with these osseo integrated sockets now, um, but the majority of the patients and the majority of the population of prosthetic users still use the standard um, socket based device. But yeah, I think we see a lot of that in all areas of healthcare and just kind of being immersed in bioengineering and seeing those around me um, working in all different fields, you know, it's no longer acceptable to just have, here's your large, I don't know, knee implant. You're close enough to it. We'll use that. I mean, there's really been scaled down to, while they're still, you know, kind of size-based, you're getting this increased scale and and just increased technology in, in order to, I mean, you've got access to CT scans and MRIs and you can really break down the anatomy and custom design something for someone like you couldn't 50 years ago or 60 years ago. I was fascinated that you really work on a piece that goes inside the socket Mm -hmm. to spread the load throughout the socket so that it, it evenly distributes the pressure from the person's lower limb into that socket so they don't have 
so they're not uncomfortable. You don't want one side of your your leg to hurt because it's bearing all the load. Yeah. Talk about that piece that you build, you work in to really, is it a comfort measure or is it, what are you doing there? Yeah. So um, what we look to do are design these specific, what we've termed kind of inlays or inserts uh, that are in addition to the socket. So they don't actually change anything about how the current prosthesis is designed or put together. It really just kind of adds a component to it. And in an, in an attempt to, like you said, better distribute the forces that a, a residual limb would feel. So some of the common problems that patients will have are these bony prominence areas. So if you're feeling your shin, it's pretty I mean, the bone's right there. There's not a lot of skin or tissue separating it from anything. So if you've got a hard plastic or a hard carbon fiber socket up against that and there's no offloading or things of that nature, then you may get kind of this these pressure points. And that happens at several different locations in the socket. And prosthetists do take these locations into account and they design the socket around those. So using different methods to, you know, change the shape of the socket so that you're offloading for these for these points so we're just trying to add another step to that so kind of increment that change one step further so that we've got a hard socket we can put something soft in it that's really specific and really custom to um, the residual limb anatomy of a patient and then that way we can further distribute this weight and and increase the comfort for wearing the socket it's almost like i'm going to oversimplify this it's almost like having a special um, thing to put in your shoe. Yeah. For when I run, if I'm, you know, if my uh, my arch has been killing me, mm-hmm. you know, and I kind of looked at it and I thought about it like, man, if I had this lower limb issue mm-hmm. and I had a prosthetic and it was just so uncomfortable, it was hard to get into, I wouldn't want to leave my house. Yeah, like it, it could be debilitating, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, what fascinates me about that is people have decided to choose this line of work. Like, so how did you get here? Look, you bring us to the backstory. I mean, yeah, you were you're playing golf at Mercer University. Yeah. How did you get to Clemson to work on lower limb sockets? Yeah. Let, let's talk about that a little bit. Um. Yeah, so it's not as convoluted as I guess one path may be. I was at Mercer. Um, I majored in biomedical engineering there. It's They're very similar, just terminology is one word means the other, basically. Um, and I was looking for something to do over the summer to kind of expand my knowledge, you know, get some experience, um, just try something new. Uh, so the summer after my junior year, I joined a summer program um, through Mercer University where we were able to go um, to Vietnam uh, and work in clinics there with the lower limb, lower limb amputee population. Um, so fitting sockets and there was a medical clinic involved. Um, so it was basically a month long, month and a half long program where I learned a lot of the basics of, hey, this is what a prosthetic device is. This is what a prosthesis is. This is how you may design one for someone. And again, it was a crash course, and I'm by no means at all qualified to fit someone for a prosthesis. Um, that's an awesome program and something I would love to learn more about. Um, but we did I did get this kind of 
more in-depth, more close look at what are the issues and what even is a prosthesis. Because I think like a lot of people, I didn't know anyone that was an amputee or if I did, they were, you know, not a close relative. And so if you don't know, you don't, you don't know what you don't know. Um, so in that experience and through that month long trip, I really kind of, I guess it spurred my interest in this specific design problem, which is really what it is at the basis is a design problem. That's like what all, what all of engineering is, is kind of a design problem. It's a process of figuring out solution to something. And so from that, I, I mean, I came back to Mercer, finished out my senior year and started thinking, well, what do I want to do? I, I'm going to graduate. I have to do something. Um, and didn't think I wanted to go to work. <laughs> so I started looking at other opportunities and graduate school kind of jumped on my radar. And one of the things that I thought was I really enjoyed this experience in Vietnam. I really enjoyed working with this specific problem. I love biomechanics. I think that's what I'd like to do. Where can I go do that? And so that's kind of how I got hooked up with my advisor at Clemson, um, Dr. John Desjardins. And um, he kind of pitched this project idea. And it it really was a perfect match of my interests and my uh, abilities. And uh, I'm not going to say I've always wanted to go to Clemson, but I definitely have. Um, my parents are both Clemson alumni. And so it was kind of a perfect fit of, hey, I get to go be a Tiger and I get to work on stuff that really interest me and and stuff that I'm really kind of passionate about. Now a quick break to give a quick shout out to the network that sports intersection, Touchpoint Media, a collection of podcasts dedicated to discussions on all things healthcare, including digital marketing and online patient engagement strategies, CIO and technology strategies, the challenges of the online physician, the power of the e-patient, and most importantly, the power of storytelling. To learn more, go to touchpoint.health. That is, touchpoint.health. Let's rejoin the show. When I talked to the the licensing board, who used to be my client, NCEES, mm-hmm. the Nash, whatever the national <laughs> licensing group, they're in Clemson. They said across the discipline, they are trying to find ways to attract young girls into engineering. Yeah. Do you think that your story has an opportunity to engage young girls and other women to say, I want to do that and I can do that and I'm just as smart Yeah. and I can knock it out of the park too? I mean, I would, I would hope so. Um, I think it's always good for people – feel like they can do I guess I would hope anybody would feel like they could do whatever they could do and they were in the situation to think that but I know that's not always the case um and so I mean if it could reach one person you know one girl that thought hey maybe this isn't a feel for me but this is what I like to do and you know you see that video or you see a video like it and and think oh well that person's doing it I can do it um that would be awesome It'd be great you know I think as engineers, you know, and as a female engineer, I not only have a responsibility towards, you know, what I'm doing now or the research I'm doing now, but I'd also like to think that I have a responsibility towards, you know, engaging those those kids or those high school students that think, hey, maybe that's not for me, but they, 
they have those interests and they think they want to do it, but they just think they can't. Um, for whatever reason, you know, I would love if something like this, you know, it's just a short three-minute video, but if a three-minute video is all it takes to get someone interested in it and spur their interest and make them think they can do it, then I think it's it's worth it. It's done what it's supposed to do. So what stories have inspired you to do this? Now, you talked about you went to Vietnam. Yeah. Was there a story that happened there? Did you meet someone or was it the engineering that inspired you? Or is, is, yeah. is there other stories out there that have inspired you to get where you are that are the driving force? Yeah. I unfortunately don't think I have one of those uh, Hollywood instances where I saw something and was like, that's what I want to do. Or like, that's the moment that inspired me. I do think it's a lot of little things um, and meeting a lot of different people and knowing a lot of people personally that have always believed that I could do what I wanted to do. Um, and so I've been very lucky in that instance that I say I want to go be an engineer. You know, those people around me, the support system that I have have always been like, yeah, go do it. You can. You know, or if I had said I want to go paint in Europe, even though I got kicked out of the art club, they would have been like, yeah, you can go do it. Um, so I've just been lucky, you know, personally to have a support system that's helped me realize that I do whatever I want to do. And then those that in combination with these different you know, activities that I've had access to or these different experiences that I've had access to that have really kind of inspired me to keep going. Um, you know, some days when it's, when it's tough at school and I'm like, why am I doing what am I, what I'm doing? Or, you know, why I'm in grad school? Why didn't I just, you know, why don't I do something else? Um, you know, I, I'll think back to some of the days in Vietnam that were so hard and so hot, you know, 105 degrees and we were out there for 13 hours a day or whatever we were doing you know I'll think back to that and think you know yeah that was tough but I look back on that with such positive memories that it makes me think that you know just this is important what I'm doing is important as you meet people there's a reason why I'm doing and I think that's the biggest thing that's like inspired me to go to engineering and specifically bioengineering is I can see the immediate impact of what we're doing and I think that's across the field, you know, we'll, we have people working on different implants, you know, you break a bone, they're redesigning plates and screws and knee implants and knee joints and all these things. And, and you kind of can see that immediate impact or you have surgeons come talk to you and say, Hey, this is a problem we're having. Can you help with it? And so you get to see kind of that immediate impact, that immediate effect that research can have on a population that doesn't have to, now there's FDA and getting something out there takes forever. Yeah. But you can kind of see that immediate impact, which I liked a lot. And it was something I always wanted when I was looking. When we started working on this video project, how did that shape your viewpoint of the discipline? Because up until this point, and I've kind of purposely asked these questions this way, yeah. you've been very logical about this. Here's yeah. a problem. I'm going to fix it. So let's get in the lab and let's just show that. And then we want to go yeah. out and shoot beautiful pictures yeah. and this. And you're, you're like, what? what? Oh, yeah. so, so talk about what that experience was like when we started working on this project and started designing what the story was going to be like. Yeah. I, it was definitely unexpected um, just because I guess I had no basis for what was going on. Um, you get CC'd on an email and you show up for a meeting and then – a year later, it's a really cool project and a really cool video that hopefully is having the impact that we want. I think it is, you know. Um, so, yeah, I, 
you know, being an engineer, I was like, oh, okay, they want to film a video about what we do. We'll just set up an experiment in the lab that is something we actually are currently doing, and they'll film that. And I think what I've learned through this is that what I think bioengineering is, and is because I'm in it. And uh, if you're outside of it and looking in, you don't really know. It can be difficult to grasp. So telling it in a story format makes it a little bit easier to, like, understand or even get involved with. And um, it's just different. You know, you're not going to – I don't want to say you're not going to attract people if you just film someone in a lab coat doing – or basic running a basic experiment, but uh, it's it's not the full story of what we do. And I guess that's kind of where I was – where I wasn't making the connection is there's a lot more that we do that I just don't think about on a day or it's not even what we do, but there's a lot more involved and a lot more, you know, adjacent to what we do than what I think about. You know, sometimes I get locked up in my little lab hole doing, you know, data analysis or running the same experiment, however many times that we need for, for significance or or what, what have you. Um, And you forget that there's a point. No, you don't forget you just kind of momentarily forget, I guess, that there's a larger picture surrounding the whole thing. So I get stuck in the little center and I forget about the large circle of kind of connected points that that affect the story as well. Because, you know, we wouldn't be doing what we were doing if this population wasn't didn't exist. And, you know, and there's people that are affected at the end point. There's people that are affected at the beginning point. There's people that are affected throughout the, the middle. And so I guess that was the biggest thing for me, like, looking back over how the video turned out and, you know, why you guys look to approach it the way you did. Um, that's why I'm not, that's why I'm not a storyteller. <laughs> if it were me, they would have been watching three minutes of me in a lab coat doing data analysis or processing some stuff. And I'm not saying um, that that would be the, not the best way to do it. I just a different way. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah. So big question. What inspires you? <laughs> yeah. Um, what gets you up in the morning? I think just the thought of doing something that's for more than just me. Knowing that hopefully what I'm doing day in and day out would impact people other than me. I think, you know, I wanted to be a doctor and that's kind of where I initially got into bioengineering because a lot of people do go into bioengineering and then go to medical school. And so when I first started, that was something that I thought I wanted to do was go to medical school and, um, you know, and as I got through it, I was like, you know, I don't have to go be a doctor to directly impact patients. Um, and so for me, if I'm having a tough day in the lab or thinking, you know, why, why continue or, or you know, or not even why continue, but I'm just getting frustrated. I mean, I think that was a, a cool scene, too, because that is definitely something that I do a lot is get frustrated. I mean, things don't work the first time. And so it's easy to get frustrated. But just knowing that you know, hopefully one day, whether it's here and something I do in the future, something that will have an impact on a population, or even if it's just one person, if you have an impact on one person more than yourself, then I feel like you've done good in the world. So last question, and then we'll kind of wrap this up. Okay. So we're sitting in my office and obviously there's pictures of my kids everywhere mm-hmm. because that's, you know, you're when you're a proud dad, you're a proud dad. Yeah, as you should. As you should be. Yeah. So there's a picture of my daughter sitting, um, the, a picture I took, and she's sitting up there with her little princess dress on and she has her little princess crown. She's smart as a whip. Mm-hmm. 
So if you could speak to the roses of the world, <laughs> yeah, what would you tell them about? And, and I ask, I'm going to frame this question because I'm being very intentional about mm-hmm. this question. I'm going to, this is not a political conversation, but it te- gives you a frame of why I'm going to ask this question. Okay. So when uh, the presidential election came the last time, there was a businessman versus um, a lady, Hillary versus uh, President Trump. Mm -hmm. And through that whole deal, Rose would watch. Mm -hmm. You know, we were watching the debates. We were watching all that stuff. And obviously, there's a lot of national discussion about between those two narratives. And Rose looked at me one day and she goes, Daddy, do you think she'll be president? And I said, I think she can be. Mm-hmm. And she's like, do you think I could do that? Yeah. And the next day, she, we're watching soccer. Mm-hmm. And it was a bunch of guys playing soccer. She's like, Daddy, can we? Can I play soccer? I'm like, absolutely. So yeah. I went and found a woman's soccer game and put in tr- and replaced it. Mm-hmm. The next day, she looked, and we were watching Sports Center. Yeah. And she looks up, and there are two ladies and one male. Yeah. Leading Morning Sports Center. And she looked at me and goes, Daddy, a girl can do that. Mm-hmm. So I yeah. asked that question, and I was very intentional about this project to pick a female because I felt like this would be a place to intersect engineering and my daughter could do it. Yeah. Like, I feel like I'm playing that out in this a little bit. Okay. So if you could speak to those girls that are watching the TVs and they're seeing women yeah. in spaces that my generation never saw women, mm-hmm. what would you say to those those rosebuds of the world? Yeah. I mean, I would initially say it's completely possible now, and especially in the future, for you to do anything you want to do um i think traditionally and and even now you know i'm so lucky to be where i am now because i've never had to really worry about not being able to do something because of my gender you know the fact that i'm female instead of male um you know and just to know that if you don't see a female in a position but you like that position go be the first one to do it um, no one's telling you you can't anymore or no one should be telling you you can't um, to find something you want to do and it doesn't matter who's done it before you go do it um, and I think hopefully things are changing so that that becomes more evident I mean I do think it's really telling you turn on ESPN and probably 80% of the time it's a male sport you know I mean there's there's female sports but they're on ESPN too, or, you know, the, the WNBA championship doesn't get nearly the press. The NBA championship gets the, I mean, there's no professional softball league, so there's a real comparison there, but you know, the, the women's soccer team, they had their huge, the huge argument and they fought for equal pay because they don't get it. It, The LPGA tour, you know, I play golf. So that's the one I know about. I mean, the prize, the purse prizes on that, or even the exposure to those, those tournaments, minuscule compared to the amount of press that the PGA tour gets. Um, so I think in the past and sports are just an easy one to relate to because everyone watches sport or most people watch sports. And so you see it there, but then that 
can transfer into, you know, other things. If you see, if you see only men doing something, you may think, oh, well, I can't do it. And I think that's a, a good point there is that switch between like, hey, daddy, can I do that to, hey, daddy, I can do that. It's a switch from a question to a, to a statement. And so, and that's what I would, you know, tell any young girl or, or anybody really that, that, that's looking to find something they want to do is find something you want to do and go do it. It doesn't matter who's done it before you. Are you a pioneer? I don't think I am, no. Why not? Because there have been people before me that I've looked to to say, like, they've done it. You know, there. I mean, there have always been people that have – there have always been those pioneers and those groundbreakers, But I and I think they would probably all maybe, maybe say, now there's always been someone before me, and I think that's the case. There's always been someone that's that's fought for what they believe in, so it doesn't really matter. You know, I think it's becoming – as much as people talk about the media – you start to you see things. We have we have access to information like no no other generation has had. You pull up your phone, you can access anything you want. You can Google anything you want. You can watch anything you want on YouTube. And so I think that's important too. Is just because you don't right off see somebody doing something that you want to do, you can probably find it. You can go look for it. And if you don't see it, don't take that as a negative. The oh that's not something I can do. Take it as a positive of. Hey, let me go make that. Let me go create that space. Somebody, I don't know if it's even a quote or if I heard it from someone, but you know, the the concept of preparing for a job that may not exist yet, which is super cool. Um, and the thought that, you know, your daughter could potentially be in a job that we haven't even thought about right now. You know, like there's so many things that you don't know what's gonna happen. And so I, I think that's important too, is don't take what other people say as limitations. Don't take what other people what you see other people doing as limitations. Ladies and gentlemen, (laughs) Meredith Owen. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and exploration. Most importantly, the many intersections inside the world of storytelling. Intersection is powered by Touchpoint Media Network, podcast dedicated to discussions on all things healthcare. Go to touchpoint.health for many other podcasts exploring digital marketing and online patient engagement strategies, CIO, technology strategies, the challenges of the online physician, the power of the e-patient, and most importantly, the power of storytelling. To learn more, go to touchpoint.health. That is touchpoint.health. Have a good day.